this place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yes. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's dark. Yeah. It's raining. They don't care. <laughs> These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns been making deposits. Time to cash the check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Deck. I am Doug Scott and I'm joined today by Justin Hopkins from scoopdeck.com. Justin, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing great so far. I uh, have a very important high school graduation for my oldest tonight. Oh, very, very, very cool. Uh, congrats to her, him. Yeah, Cooper, him. Cooper, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. we know Cooper. Yeah, congrats to Cooper. That's very exciting. And thanks for throwing me under the bus because I said good afternoon and then you said good morning. So now the <laughs> audience knows that we're releasing this in the afternoon, but it's being recorded in the morning. So a little bit of inside baseball there. And speaking of baseball, uh, we have a special guest today, also from Scoop Deck, uh, writer Jared Denny, Scoop Deck staff member, is here to talk to us a little bit about what's going on with Oregon baseball. Um, you know, Looking back over this this 2022-2023 sports calendar season, if you will, not the best for Oregon sports as a whole. You know, I mean, football was solid, but probably a little bit where under where fans you know wanted or hoped it to to end. You know, neither basketball team made the NCAA's. Men's track was like lost the Pac-12 title for the first time in like 15 years. Uh, so it's kind of been an underwhelming sports season overall but softball and baseball have kind of picked up the slack here at the end softball making it to the super regionals before bowing out and now baseball which is still alive and well and and entering the super regionals themselves so we thought we'd bring jared on and i don't nothing about baseball outside of the headlines so jared you know you're the expert on this you know we'd love to kind of give us a little bit of backstory about the oregon baseball program team season they're having and and kind of where you know, kind of get everyone caught up on the current situation, if you will. Yeah, man, I appreciate you guys having me on. And like you said, it's just been a really fun couple of weekends for Oregon baseball. Um, this is a team that, I mean, as much as a few weeks ago, kind of the last regular um, season series in May, they, they were looking sort of dead in the water and there wasn't a ton of hope that they were going to make a lot of noise in the postseason. And despite being ranked kind of in the 13, 14, 15 range for a lot of sort of early to mid-April, um, by the time May rolled around, they're looking like they might not even make the tournament because they just went on this horrendous losing sort of skid that I think at one point um, in May, they were three and seven and they went to the Pac-12 tournament sort of missing like by far their best pitcher and maybe their second, third best pitcher, depending on how you kind of prioritize that. And um, they just, 
sort of looked like they were floundering. And then they go on this, for those who saw it, a really, really fun run for the Pac-12 tournament. They won four games in five days. They, they beat Stanford, who was sort of uh, far and away the best team in the Pac-12 during the regular season. Um, they beat them in their second game, which is obviously um, a huge upset. And I think that just gave them a ton of momentum. And um, they go on to beat Washington and Arizona in the Pac-12 semifinals and Pac-12 title game. And um, since then, they've, they've really just looked like... Um, Hey, can I can I can I interject something there, Jared? So, yeah, sure. it, you know, and maybe you know a little bit more about this than than I do, but I remember, you know, at the time that the baseball team was entering the Pac-12 tournament, there was a lot of speculation that they, if they don't win the tournament, they might not even make the the regionals in the in the NCAA, you know, field of sixty-four. That they kind of needed to go on that run, even to make the field. I mean, what's your read on that? Would they have made it if they didn't win the tournament? I think Touch it was a go. little, yeah. I think it was a little hyperbolic to say they wouldn't have made it if they went, didn't win the tournament. But I sort of went into it. I remember talking to a couple different writers about this. That I, I think they needed to beat Cal in their first game. It was not a very good Cal team. They needed to win that game to feel really good about getting in the tournament. And one more, I think, would have probably punched their ticket. I, I don't think that unless they like absolutely imploded and went two and out of the Pac-12 tournament, that there was any any real risk that they're going to miss the big dance. But it, it was still for a team, like I said, that was ranked as high as sort of 14th or 15th at one point. That's not a situation that I don't think they necessarily wanted to be in. Um, so, but it, that all goes to say, um, it, it's been a spectacular sort of eight game run since then. And I think it's just been really impressive for the most part to see how this young pitching staff has come along. Like I said, this is a, for fans who haven't followed the team, their, their best pitcher far and away this year was Jay Stoffel, an in-state kid um, who sort of blossomed to arguably one of the best pitchers in the Pac-12 this year. He um, established himself as Oregon's clear-cut Friday night starter from the get-go and had an ERA that was sort of sitting in the 2.5, 2.6 um, range for a lot of the season and beat some really good teams. He uh, beat Stanford, he beat Oregon State, I think in back-to-back weekends, if I'm not mistaken, and um, was looking like he might be the Pac-12 pitcher of the year just from a resume standpoint, and he hasn't pitched since April 28th for what Oregon's coach, Mark Wasikowski, has described as an injury that is unrelated to his throwing um, arm, pitching arm, which is a good sign, but um, is still it's still troubling that he's obviously been sidelined. And we're supposed to meet with Waz um, around noon Pacific time today and maybe get an update on him, but we can get it. We can get more into the injury stuff. But I'm sort of pessimistic at this point that we're going to see him again this season. So that kind of makes the run all the more impressive when you're when you're doing it without you know, one or two of your, you know, kind of rotation, if you will. Right. So it's been, it's been kind of, uh, obviously one of the differences I've noticed kind of just following the team here in this, in this little, you know, the Pac-12 tournament and the regionals and, and not following them before that is one of the things I've noticed about Oregon baseball, but also college baseball in general is they seem to score a lot more runs than, than people who follow major league baseball are familiar with. Can you kind of touch on, on why that is a little bit? Yeah, it was funny. During the, the Xavier game on Sunday, um, some people in our message board thread started commenting that um, a lot of these ERAs are really high. Every reliever who comes in has an, an ERA in the five or six region. And it's that, that's just kind of how especially West Coast baseball is nowadays. I, I posted a link in that same chat. And um, there's a, there's only four starting pitchers in the Pac-12 this year with an ERA under four just because the bats in the league are so good. Um, you kind of, you're in an era of college baseball where you, you still have your, a couple of workhorse starters, but a lot of teams are just trying to get their starter through three or four innings, maybe get through the batting order twice and then turn it over to the bullpen um, just because there is 
Um, I think for a lot of programs, an emphasis on saving your best pitcher's arms and not running your guys into the ground like you used to. And um, I mean, back in the day, you'd have pitchers who would um, maybe pitch at a super regional on Friday and throw 100, 120 pitches and then come back on Sunday and throw throw the seventh inning out of the bullpen. And it was just really terrible for the long-term health of the players and for the health of the sport as a whole. So I think Oregon is one of those programs that has been very conscientious about not just grounding their pitchers into dust every every June and uh, kind of protecting their kids' long-term health. So that has something to do with it. I probably can tell you exactly why ERAs are sort of um, as high as they've ever been in this sport, but a lot of it does have to do just with the fact that there's a ton of hitting talent in Pac-12 this year. Yeah, do you think conversely there's more more of the pitching talent goes the minor league baseball route instead of college? Yeah, that could be, and it is, it is a, a bit the same as always where you're really, really elite high school pitching prospects or they're going to get a big first-round signing bonus and they're going to go and they, they may commit to uh, whatever school but they're never going to set foot on campus and um yeah I, i'm actually really curious just to see how that trend sort of whether or not it continues over the next few years and i'm, I'm not as dialed in on baseball as i was sort of maybe four or five years ago but um it, it is really interesting just to see i mean Oregon's a great example they have what i think six seven kids hitting over 300 in their lineup it's um and they were a middle of the road pac 12 team from a regular season standpoint it's just a really really offense happy time in the sport yeah it, it's kind of fun to watch i mean and it's you know picking up a little bit of of the regional action and you know obviously sabalos uh the hitter for oregon you know pretty impressive watching him i can't think of the the, the kid's name but i think he's the japanese player kind of a really unusual batting stance or style um it is it is kind of interesting and fun to watch it's been really fun, and yeah, uh, Nishida, the, the leadoff hitter, he's, he kind of became a fan favorite from a national perspective um, throughout the Super Regional. The ESPN commentators loved him, and um, it's like you said, he, he has a little bit of a funky aesthetic approach to the plate, and he'll do some interesting stuff. He's crouching four pitches and hopping up like as the pitcher starts his motion. He's danced around on second base trying to distract the catcher, and um, it, it is really fun to watch, but there's a lot of substance behind that style. He's a really, really good hitter, and um, He's only about five foot six, five foot seven, but um, he, he has some pop in his bat more than you would expect for a player that speed or a player that size, I should say. And um, speed wise, I mean, he, he's stolen a ton of bags this year. Uh, we saw it a few times during the Super Regional and even during the Pac-12 tournament. He hits the ball on the ground and it takes a, a big chopping hop, and um, there, there's no way you're going to throw him out because he's a left-hander who's fast and it's getting a little bit of a, a step towards first with his swing, and um, it, it's just really, really effective. And then once you get him on base, you have some incredible bats behind him, and that's just been such a key for Oregon the last few weeks, I think, is getting Nishid on base, having him maybe swipe a bag, and then you have Colby Shea, Drew Callie, Sabine Ceballos, Tanner Smith, like oh, any one of those guys could be um, Oregon's best hitter on a given day. So it's just it's a really fun offense to watch, and it goes one through nine, to be honest. So, you know, moving back into the regionals here, obviously Oregon got a two-seed um, in the Vanderbilt regional, I think they call it the name of the city, but Vanderbilt was the one seed. Uh, and then, obviously, as you said, they swept through there, beat Xavier twice, knocked off Vandy uh, along the way, and, and came out of the regionals. And I think, what, this is their first trip to the Super Regionals in, what, 10, 10 11 years? Yeah, that was uh, 2012 was the last time they were there. And um, for Oregon fans who were watching that, they, they lost sort of a heartbreaker to Kent State that would have sent them to the college world series and it's it's been a long way back for them um for those who haven't followed the program uh george horton was oregon's uh, coach for a long time is a legendary coach from cal state fullerton who um 
sort of came when Oregon reinstated the program and had a lot of success right away. And he got an incredible pitching coach called Andrew Checkets, who um, is now the coach at UC Santa Barbara. But he was very int- instrumental in Oregon getting a ton of pitching talent. Um, they had their ace for sort of their first four years back. Tyler Anderson, he was a first-round pick, still pitching in the majors. And um, they were a really, really good, really effective program that sort of won playing small ball and not hitting the ball a ton and um, just kind of uh, leaning on their pitchers. And in the kind of latter years of the George Horton era, that really, really started to fade. And they had some really down seasons and it eventually led to a departure of Horton from the program. And they brought in Mark Wazikowski in 2020. He's been here the last four years. And it's sort of a polar opposite playing style. Um, they're one of the funnest offenses, I think, to watch in the country. They, um, Like I said earlier, they, they can hit one through nine. Um, they, they always have a couple guys in the middle of the lineup who are going to match you 15 to 20 homers a year. Like you said earlier, Sabine Ceballos um, is a ton of fun to watch in the Super Regional. Just an incredible power hitter. And, um, they're definitely built more, um, I would say, sort of an enjoyable way to watch at this point than they were maybe 10 years ago when they were, when they were having success. But it, it wasn't like this. They, were, they weren't matching the ball all over the ballpark. So it's been really, really fun to watch in that sense. Yeah, so now... They find themselves here in the Super Regionals and and actually getting to host the Super Regional, which wouldn't have happened had you know the the other regional opposite them gone gone chalk, right? But Oral Robert Oral Roberts came out of that regional and and now will visit Eugene this weekend for a best two out of three series in the Super Regionals, and the winner goes to the College World Series in Omaha. Um, and from what I understand, as as impressive as the Oregon winning streak is, Oral Roberts has an even more impressive streak going on right now. Yeah, they're they're forty nine and eleven on the year, coming out of the Summit League, um, but which obviously not the not the strongest uh, level of competition um, compared to sort of what Oregon was facing. But anybody who watched them during the regional, like they can really, really, man, they have a really good kind of two through four in their order. They got a guy named Jonah Cox who is hitting 424 right now. He gets on base about half the time. So there's not a lot of players in the country doing that. And um, they have three very good pitchers that they're going to be a really tough out um, in the super regional. I think I know a lot of Oregon fans were sort of feeling thankful to Oklahoma state, um, like you said, didn't didn't win their regional and, and that it didn't go chalk, but and and obviously that would have meant that Oregon wasn't hosting if Oklahoma State had won. But I think that Oregon is no doubt going to have their hands full with this team. I just think we're going to see some really really good baseball in Eugene this weekend. Yeah, and it sounds like tickets are sold out or or close to sold out, hard to come by anyway. So I think that that's great that the Oregon. Oregon faithful down Eugene and, and, and all parts around seem to be stepping up and wanting to, wanting to get on board this train and, and support the team and, and hopefully hopefully send them to Omaha. That would be incredible. I mean, the, the Ducks haven't made the College World Series since reinstating the program, correct? Yeah, that's correct. All right. Any other, any other baseball thoughts you want to throw our way? I'll just be really int- intrigued to see what they do with the rotation. Like, like I said, we're going to talk to Waz this afternoon and um, and I'm pretty, while I don't know for sure, um, I'd be pretty surprised if we see either of Oregon's top two pitchers, Jay Stoffel, like I said, has been one of the best pitchers in the Pac-12 this year. And then Isaac Aon, a guy who was sort of their Friday night star last year and was expected to be the Friday night guy again this year. He hasn't pitched an inning all season. And um, it's still a little bit of a mystery around the circumstances of his absence. And he's, he's a guy who could get drafted this year. And it's, it sort of remains yet to be seen if we see him again in an Oregon uniform. But 
Um, it goes without saying, Oregon's, I mean, they're missing their two best pitchers and um, are still going on this really, really impressive postseason run. So the the young pitching staff has just been, I, I think if Oregon fans are looking for a storyline to really latch onto, it would be that. Like they, they have a ton of guys, like almost every guy they throw out there is a freshman or a Juco guy who's in his first or second year at the program. And it, it got ugly there sort of at the end of the regular season. You had a lot of pitchers kind of um, going through growing print growing pains at once and um, trying to figure out how to succeed at the Pac-12 level. And, and I think a lot of them have really, really figured it out the last few weeks. Like Tanner Spoljarek and Grayson Grinsel um, were both outstanding for Oregon during the during the regional. And those are two guys who they're really, really going to have to lean on um, this weekend. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's their, um, their Friday and Saturday starter. All right, Jared. Well, thanks for coming on and, and filling us in a little bit on on what's going on with baseball and it, it's exciting times down there in eugene and, and pk park will be uh will be the place to be this weekend and and hopefully we'll we'll be talking about the ducks trip to omaha uh, after that's all said and done so appreciate your time yeah no doubt appreciate you guys all right uh that's jared denny from scoopduck.com you can go and read all of his work over there on uh, covering baseball and, and lots of other sports Lots of other Oregon sports over at Scoop Ducks. Justin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I know you were not able to make it on the last episode with, with Andrew and I. We talked a little bit about, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the things we talked about. One of the things was dark horse candidates around the country, the other Power Five conferences specifically, or all five of the Power Five conferences for, if you take out the teams who are, you know, the the obvious favorites in those leagues, what are some other teams that are under the radar that, that might step up and win that league? Um, you you want to jump in here and give your thoughts on that? You I know, can, I, I can tee them up for you. Well, I was just, why, why don't you give me a few that uh, you guys came up with and I'll, I'll offer if I agree with that or not. Because off the top of my head, I... I don't know who a dark horse would be. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, who's who's last year's TCU, right? That's right, right. Kind of yeah, and, yeah, and I think we were just talking too about a dark horse to win the conference, not necessarily, you know, getting into the playoffs and whatnot. But uh, so oh, the, starting in starting in the SEC, you know, obviously Georgia and Alabama would be the favorites as they are every year. I debated on whether. I, LSU should be considered uh, eligible to a dark horse or not. I think ultimately, you know, before I even got a chance to say it, QB jumped on the, on LSU as his dark horse candidate, um, which I obviously agree. I, I think they're they're the clear, you know, the clear three in the in the group of three that would win the conference. If you took them out, though, you know, is there anybody else you like there as as somebody you could sneak in and maybe backdoor their way or not backdoor their way, but like surprise some people on their way to winning the SEC if it's not georgia bama or lsu yeah and i'm not even sure i'm totally on the lsu train i mean i know brian kelly gets a lot of love there and and he's won a lot of games granted but um i you know i guess that kind of depends on on how well they get uh, their play out of the quarterback position i know tennessee kind of is a popular pick but again I, I, like i'm not sure about tennessee i see a lot of of holes there and i think that this is probably the first time that I can remember because 
let's be real. Everybody says the SEC is the best conference in the country, and they and they typically are. I'm not going to dispute that. Um, you know, but but when saying that, it's oftentimes it's Bama, Georgia, and like you mentioned, maybe an LSU or Tennessee's up there, or it's a Florida or whatever the case might be. And this year, if you start to look at, I I do think like everybody's kind of saying LSU and Tennessee are kind of those next ones up after Bama, Georgia. And I'm totally not on board with those two. I think they'll be good teams. I'm not sure they'll be great teams. So, um, you know, in terms of that, the one that I think might be kind of the sneaky one there, I guess it could be two, depending on how you look on it, at it. I think that you could look at Kentucky possibly kind of maybe being that dark horse. Again, we're looking for somebody that, that not is, is not really being talked about. Uh, I think Kentucky has some things that that could go their way. Um, and the other one is, and this is just, I don't know, maybe this is just me because I, I actually like him a lot, but I think Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss, uh, you know, might be kind of a sneaky, you know, favorite there to kind of be a dark horse uh, at, out of the SEC. I don't know that he's got the depth there to get it done, but again, we're looking at, you know, we're looking at dark horses, like you said, so. Um, those would be the two for me. I, again, I think LSU and Tennessee are kind of being overrated right now. So I would go with Kentucky and Ole Miss being some surprises. Okay, let's move over to the, the Big Ten. Uh, obviously, Ohio State, Michigan would would not be eligible. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the one QB jumped on here, obviously, is Penn State, which I almost considered not making them eligible either because it's the it's the easiest answer because the Big Ten is such a top-heavy league, right? You get past yeah. those three, and it's like there's a there's a pretty considerable gap between – well, first of all, I think there's a considerable gap between Ohio State – I'm sorry, between Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State, I think there's a, a decent gap. Uh, some people would quibble with that. But I think the gap from Penn State to whoever – whoever is number four in any given year is is a chasm in that league yes. right now i agree so yeah so i think it's really hard to say i i, I think we we kind of settled on wisconsin just because of the division format and you know some team is going to win the west and make the big 10 title game and that right there once you're in that game you you know any given saturday right <laughs> right no, I agree. I think you are spot on there. I think, you know, for this year, you kind of see the SEC and the Big Ten have those big two, right? They have SEC as Alabama and Georgia. By the way, I think that going back to the SEC, I think Alabama actually wins the SEC this year, which is probably the unpopular opinion. But I think Nick Saban's going to come out with some gusto this year. Um, I agree with you. Michigan and Ohio State are clearly above everybody else. I could see why you would want to disqualify Penn State because they're up there too but somehow some way yet still James Franklin figures out a way to choke every single year so it's one of the few constants in college football so I probably won't go with Penn State and I'm going to go with a deep deep dark horse and I do think that there's a lot to be made up but I'm, I've got my eye on Nebraska and I, I think that Matt Rule was probably the best hire that school could have made uh, coming off the Scott Frost era, I don't know that Scott Frost left them a lot of meat on the bone there in terms of talent, but um, I would also say that I haven't tracked their portal activity closely as I would in Oregon school. So I, I do believe in Coach Rule. I do know that he hired some really good assistants around him. And as we saw from his time at Baylor, he did a really good job of letting those guys do their job. So I will go with Nebraska. 
it's a really deep pick, but uh, they, after winning three games last year, they really have nowhere else to go but up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Big 12, Oklahoma, and, and Texas are interesting because, you know, neither one made the, the Big 12 title game last year, but if you look at over-under, you know, numbers for for this season, they're both at 9.5, and, and I think the next highest team in the Big 12 is at, like, 7.5. So, um Obviously, from a roster talent perspective, they're they're far and away above everyone else in that conference. But they have been the last several years, and you know it hasn't helped. So, it, this is a more interesting, wide open league in general we've seen over the last several years, and I, I think that you know possibly continues this year. So, if you, if it's not one of those two, is it TCU again? Do you like somebody else? Yeah, I, I think TCU takes a step back. I think that was a great year uh, for Coach Dykes, but that's going to be hard to duplicate that success. Um, I think you really have to keep an eye on K-State. I know they've kind of become a popular, trendy pick, um, but I do think there's some merit to that with K-State. Um, so that's probably it. Next, after that, I, and we'll get a really, really, really good taste for this one right away, but it's Texas Tech. I mean, you, you know, they're a top 20 team right now. I think a lot of folks that are not in that neck of the woods or, or deeply tied to the Big 12 are kind of sleeping on Texas Tech. Uh, and I think there's a lot to like there for that team. I think they really brought together some things. So I guess to me, that's kind of the trendy one. And it's kind of cool that we'll get to watch them, you know, up front for the Ducks. Keep in mind, if 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 Oregon can beat Texas Tech and Texas Tech can have a really good season, that's nothing but positive for Oregon. So. Yeah, I mean, Tech's getting a lot of a lot of offseason buzz for sure. And, and so I think. You know, I don't. I, I don't want to overlook that game, and I, I think you know Oregon fans don't want to overlook that game. I mean, I, I look at it as it's not going to be an easy out for Oregon, especially on the road. And Tech is a is a quality football team. So, I, I mean, to me, Oregon is a, is a team that if you if Oregon is the program that the coaches want it to be, that the fans want it to be, that we think we are you know, top 10 talent level in the country, like, you know, where you want to get to, what your aspirations are for this program. Like, this is the type of game that those programs win. I mean, you just do. You know, if you're an elite program in the country, you go in and you beat a Texas Tech nine yeah. times out of 10, right? So, but it's not a gimme, right? You got to show up and you got to play your game. Yeah, totally agree. If, 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 if we're all hoping that Oregon is going to be the team or get to the level that, you know, the coaches are kind of touting them, you know, as working towards. Yeah, you're a hundred percent correct. Oregon should be able to walk in, push around Texas tech, uh, win the game. Uh, doesn't mean it needs to be 45 to three, but you should have that game, you know, pretty well in check somewhere around halftime moving forward. And, and, you know, you want to kind of comfort comfortably win the game. The only, you know, caveat to that is it's obviously, you know, one of your first uh, couple of games of the season. So there's going to be some wrinkles, some rust, some things that you're probably not prepared for. But again, you got to go in and win that game. hundred percent. Yeah. And those things apply to both teams too. Right. Um, so moving on to the, to the, um, what am I, Oh, the ACC, we skipped past them. Uh, you know, Clemson, Florida state, obviously the, the two primary contenders, is there a dark horse to win that league outside of those two? I mean, you got to talk about North Carolina, and, I, and I, I feel that way, not because I fully trust Mac Brown, but because I do fully trust Drake May. Uh, you know, we saw him 
in the bowl game against Oregon. And holy cow, if that's not one of the best quarterbacks in the country, I don't know who is. So I think anytime you have elite quarterback play like that, if you can just get a couple pieces around him and, and, and have some semblance of a defense, you're certainly going to win a lot of football games in the ACC and probably be able to meet, meet beat most teams uh, in the country. So I, I've got my eye on North Carolina again, and, and that's really just kind of based on what we saw to Drake May. That kid is absolutely special, and I think he's going to be uh, very difficult for teams to defend this year as well. Yeah, that was my pick as well. I, I think um, Louisville is another one that you know maybe could sneak in there, and I think QB had QB had another pick. I'm trying to remember what it was, but um, you know it was on the episode, so the fans no. the fans listen to it or can go back and listen to it. But I, I was with you on the North Carolina pick. Knowing him, it was something obscure like Wake Forest or, or Virginia <laughs> Tech or something. But you know the other thing, and I know fans aren't going to want to hear it, but. I've got a feeling that the second year for Mario Cristobal at Miami is going to be a lot better than the debut season. Yeah, so I, I know, do too. Yeah. I don't think fans want to hear that, but he was pretty good in the transfer portal, closed pretty well on the recruiting trail last year. Um, and quite frankly, once again, I think Florida State's the best team in the ACC, and even they're beatable, I guess, if you will. So I, I, I just – I don't know what you think. I think – and I'm a homer. I know I'm a homer, and I'll just say it. The Pac-12, 1 through 5, is the best conference in the country, 1 through 5. Now, it doesn't mean that Oregon can, you know, that Oregon or USC or whoever can go out and beat Bam and Georgia, uh, you know, or Florida State and Clemson. I'm not saying that, but 1 through 5, I think there's a big drop-off after, you know, let's say number 3 in the SEC. We know there's a pretty decent drop-off in the Big Ten after uh, Ohio State and Michigan. I still am not fully bought in on Penn State for what it's worth. I just think one through five, you start talking about Washington being a really good team out of the Pac-12. You start talking about UCLA probably having a chance with Chip Kelly there. I think there's some really good football. We're not even talking about Utah yet. People are still sleeping on Utah once again for whatever reason. So, I mean, I'd, I'd even say one through six, you know, because I, I, I look at the Pac-12 as, as thir- six teams that are good or better and six teams that are, you know, bad or worse so um you know so it's a very bifurcated league in that regard evenly split between the top and the bottom half and and i would agree i mean there's to me there's no question in my mind that i'd put that top six again if you're talking one versus one yeah i I, i'm gonna take i'm gonna take the the you know or even two versus two i'm gonna take the big 10 probably over the pack but i would put that i would put one through six, like you said, you get to the you get to the three, four, five. Like I think the the Pac Ten's number three is probably better than Penn State. I yeah. think the Pac Ten's number four is absolutely far and away better than whoever the Big Ten's number four is. And the same thing with five and six. And then I think if you move to the Big Twelve, I mean, I think one through six is probably. I think that's the other league where you'd say the depth goes better right i mean they're not as yeah. not as good at the top end but they have they have good middle depth in that league so um i'd actually you know say their their one through six is probably also pretty good but i think the differentiator is the quarterback play in the pack 12 one through six is it's pretty significant um it's huge you know, then you, yeah and you go over to acc and i'm with you too right again you got you got a top two and i think you know it starts trailing off pretty quickly after that and and i mean the sec I don't know. That's a harder one to me. Like uh, their their top their top two is so 
is so far and away above the the Pac-12 top two. Correct. You know, does does three through, you know, does three through six. You know, is there, it, what I what I I'd almost say three through six in the Pac-12 versus three through six in the SEC might be a wash. So, I, I probably wouldn't I probably wouldn't go that that far to say. I mean, that's Washington versus LSU more than likely. That's a really good matchup, in my opinion. Yeah, but I'm taking LSU in that. <laughs> Man, really? Uh, yeah, Man. I, I am. I I I I think Washington's a little bit overrated, and I know that's going to sound like a homer thing, but. Well, they have yeah. a lot of problems on defense that aren't being discussed. Yeah, and depth and depth issues, yeah. and and I think they're yeah. they're they benefited you know from a schedule last year that was that was pretty easy. So you know we've yeah. talked about Washington. We'll talk about them more as we go into our you know previews later in the summer. But um, uh, yeah, I would take the, I would take the SEC one through six over the pack one through six. But I get your point. The point is that it's a deep league at the top, and and we didn't talk about them. So uh, dark horses for the pack. We said you can't you can't pick. USC, Oregon, Washington, or Utah. So okay. those are the four favorites, if you will, by most of the media and, and whatnot. So if you if you can't pick one of those, who do you like? <laughs> to yeah, win the I conference. Mean, it's t- it's it's tough. I think I think Chip did enough in the transfer portal to keep his team highly competitive, and we know, you know, Chip Kelly's going to have uh, they're going to, you know, they're they're going to have decent quarterback play. Whoever emerges as the uh you know starter from his his two-person race there um hopefully it's not dante Moore, but you know because it'll just sting that much more but it could be um so i do like ucla and i do appreciate chip kelly is a terrible recruiter okay he's a terrible recruiter he hates it he doesn't want to do it so the transfer portal has become his best friend oh it's it's been it's changed their program yeah, it's the best thing that's ever happened to a Chip Kelly-led UCLA team. He gets to go into the transfer portal now and get guys that he doesn't have to recruit and make edits for and do all this other stuff. They can just say, hey, come play for me. We'll win games, and it's Chip Kelly. You're going to do that. So maybe the unpopular opinion for me, and it's tough, but again, I still think, and this might hurt some Duck fans' feelings, I still think Jonathan Smith is the best coach in the Pac-12 right now. I think he does more with less um, I think DJU is going to be more than a serviceable quarterback for him this season. I'm just projecting them as a team that basically nobody really wants to face this year. I'm not saying they win the pack. I'm not being ridiculous, but if things fall the right way, they could be in a good position late in the season if they can win some early games and stay healthy and do some things. Again, I think Jonathan Smith, that coach you hate to face, and I think Oregon State will be a team that you really don't want on your schedule this year. So. I'm not saying they win, but crazier things have happened. Yeah, and and the the thing that with UCLA and Oregon State, particularly UCLA, is their their conference schedule. Like they don't play Oregon and they don't play Washington, and so because of the top two format, which by the way was a horrendously stupid decision by the conference, <laughs> I'll stand by that. Um, it, it, but because of that top two format, like. While Utah, Washington, Oregon, and USC play a full round robin and you know knock each other off, UCLA, you know has you know does doesn't play two of those teams. So if they can, if they win, you know they got Utah, Oregon State, and Southern Cal, right? And if they win two of those games. They're probably sitting there in the Pac-12 title game, waiting for whoever emerges from that 
round robin of death at the top of the conference, right? So I think it's a scenario this year. And then Oregon State, you know, to a little bit lesser degree, they don't play USC. Um, and their other miss is Arizona State. So not quite as good of a setup, but it, it also, it looks, it, to me, I see that Oregon State versus UCLA game as being potentially a winner gets a spot in the in the Pac-12 title game because the rest of the schedules for both of those two teams in the conference is a, particularly for UCLA is a little bit lighter. Um, and so I think it's very probable that the two best teams in the conference will not make the Pac-12 title game because of the scheduling disparities. Well, and it's going to be like Stanford, Oregon, you know, in the in the early 2010s all over again. Clearly far and away the two best teams and one of them's not going to make the Pac-12 title game. And I think the same thing's going to happen this year in a different format. Yeah, for whatever reason the the Pac-12 has done a terrific job at, at kind of self-cannibalizing itself. You know, it just it, it yep. always has. SEC has figured it out, make kind of done doing a better job ensuring that you know the better two get to the title game, and then what you have happen is they play in a close title game. So then they both get the benefit of the doubt with with the voters and the pollsters and everybody that you know. Well, these are two super strong teams. We we can't push one out of the playoff just because one beat the other. Uh, and the Pac-12 has yet to figure this out. We just love to see eat our own, and then, like you said, you end up backdooring your way into you know USC and Oregon State with Oregon and Washington sitting there as probably far better teams. But that's not how it worked out. Just for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, even last year, you know, Utah backdoors their way into the title game, and obviously they ended up winning it. So it kind of like makes all the conversation a little bit moot. But I mean, they lost to Oregon, you know, uh, at the second last week of the season, and ended up in a tie with Oregon, and still went to the title game uh, through some weird tiebreaker scenario because Cal beat Colorado and therefore Utah, <laughs> you know, had, you know, Utah's opponents in the pack won one more game than Oregon's opponents in the pack because Cal beat Colorado in week 12. Like that literally was what decided how Utah got into the game instead of Oregon. And the Washington sitting there also in that same tie. Right. And they're sitting there going like, <laughs> you know, why not us? And if, and if it was the North versus South format, it would have been Washington. And, you know, credit to Utah for, for winning the game that, in my mind, they, they probably shouldn't have been in, but, you know, they got there. So, yeah, um, it, it, I think I think this situation this current year is going to be worse. And, and quite frankly, I, I'm on record of saying this on various places online, and I'll stand by it. And I, I think it's not like the, the ACC is moving to a divisionalist format this year. They're going to be top two as well. The SEC and the Big Ten are going to move to top two in a year from now when their new teams join. Mark my words. Very soon, one or more of these leagues is going to have a situation where because of the fact there's not enough cross-play between, especially in these 16-team leagues, right, and especially in the SEC where they're only going to play eight games, right, you're, in, you're playing half the league. The tiebreakers without divisions are going to be ridiculous and they're going to end up in a situation where the team that wins the the tiebreaker on paper is the team that the public is going to sit there going like this is bs this team should not be in this game while this other team should be because of some arcane tiebreaker i guarantee you this is going to happen it's going to happen more than once and and people are going to start reconsidering the the top two format pretty quickly because in a 16 team league it's going to lead to unpopular results that don't 
makes sense. Yes. No, I agree. And then, you know, to your point, because it happened in the Pac-12, nobody paid attention or cared, except for those of us in the Pac-12. <laughs> right. But you're right. But yeah. you wait, wait until, wait until the SEC has, you know, three teams that finish eight and one, or let's say they got a team that finishes nine and zero, or sorry, eight and zero. They're only playing eight conference games. So let's say, let's say Georgia goes eight and zero, and Bama. Well, let's go to a different example. But yeah, Bama and LSU. Both go, you know, seven and one, but they didn't play each other, right? And 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 now the tiebreaker comes down to the fact that you know LSU, you know, beat Kentucky and and Bama beat Vanderbilt, and and LSU's strength of schedule is better. Like, how is and LSU gets in and Bama gets left home? How is the public going to react to that? Yeah, no, I totally. It's agree. not going to be popular. And this yeah. will happen. This ab- it may not be. It may be next year. It may be three years from now. But a scenario similar to that is mathematically guaranteed to happen it, with a sixteen-team league who doesn't who uses a top-two format. It, it will happen. Yeah. yeah, it'll happen within the next two years. Or there'll be sure. or there'll be a four-team tie, right? And and, the, and it turns down to some weird BS, you know, like happened in the Pac-12 <laughs> last year, and everyone's like, that makes no sense, like. You know, and a team that a, a team that lost a head to head to another team will get in. <laughs> it, it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's it's ill. It's ill conceived. So we'll see. Uh, let's switch over to recruiting. Well, did you guys put a bow on that with your dark dark horse pick for the national championship? Did you? Have no, that? we didn't. We didn't no, go there. No. But go for it. Let's hear it, Chris. No, and I, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know that I have, but I I do actually think that it, it might be Florida State. I think that's a team to really watch for this year. I think uh, I think Mike Nor- Norvell's done a really good job recruiting in the transfer portal. Um, I know Duck fans know who the running back is there, Trey Benson, and that guy just looks like a freak, a beast. So I don't know why. Probably unpopular opinion, but but I really like Florida State. Not to mention the fact that they play the ACC, which is probably one of the weaker conferences in the in the in the country, in my opinion. Yeah, I certainly like them as a candidate, as a as a leading candidate to make the playoffs. I mean, winning two games once they get there, I think, you know, I just keep coming back to and maybe I over rev on, on the on the recruiting talent composite, whether you want to look at like the blue chip ratio or whether you want to look at the the team talent composite of what's on the roster, like they all they both have been 100% at saying what well, you have to have a minimum baseline amount of talent on your team to, to win a title. And, and there's basically 25 years of data that, that proves that to be true. It hasn't, nobody under 50% has won one in 25 years. So right. until that happened and, and Florida state's under that, that, you know, they're not, they're not there. So until that happens, I'm not going to, predict that it will uh i think there and i think the other thing that that leads me even stronger to feel that way is that what you're seeing is that talent consolidation continues to strengthen at the top of that list right you know if you look at the blue chip ratio five years ago there was you know one team over 75 percent now there's like seven teams that are over 70 percent right the, the consolidation of the top talent at the fewer and fewer schools is just getting you know more and more prevalent, which means getting to that title game, or sorry, getting to that playoffs and winning two games against elite teams, 
yeah. it's a hard ask. And if you don't have that depth, and you don't have that depth of talent across the roster, I just I think you you kind of hit a wall there. So to me, I would predict a team that has that baseline talent composite. Um, you know, if if you're saying dark horse, like I, I'd say, you know, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, you know, you can't. They would be favorites, so you, you'd throw them out. You know. Is LSU a dark horse? I'd pick them if, if they're considered a dark horse. Michigan, I think, is a dark horse. I don't I don't think Michigan can win, pr- to be honest. I, I think they can make the playoffs. They've proven that. I think they could make the finals. I don't think they can win. I don't think they can win two games there. I just don't think they have enough enough juice. And I don't think they have the quarterback play, their proven quarterback play. But, um, you know, yeah. they're a dark horse, too. I mean... I don't know that I would include anybody else. I don't. Yeah. I don't think USC has the talent to make it. I mean, they're they're they have they're barely over the blue chip ratio, but if you look at the 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 way that talent spreads around the wa- the roster positionally, I don't think it's there. I don't think it's there in the trenches for them. It's all on one side of the ball for the you know it's all yeah. on offense and like and, you said it's not on the interior at all. Yeah. No, I think USC is the the popular pick because it's USC and I mean the, the Caleb Williams factor is the one thing where it maybe gives you pause right where is, is this a scenario where just you know a, a guy with that level of talent at the quarterback position can can do enough in a two game situation to to defy the odds a little bit and overcome some of those other disparities maybe I wouldn't bet on it I mean I wouldn't pick them um, I would there's you know a lot of teams I'd probably pick ahead of USC to win the national title, but you know when you have that transcendent quarterback, as we know, like that can hide a lot of blemishes. Yeah, no doubt. You know the one that's really intriguing. We can move off this after this is, but to me, the one that has the most like to gain or lose is Notre Dame. I mean that yeah. the season Marcus Freeman had last year was kind of uh, you know mixed, if you will, at best, and then. You know, people have them as a top 15 this year, but if they struggle this year, you know, you just kind of wonder what questions will come out of Notre Dame. But like you, to your point, you start looking at roster composition. There's a lot of talent on that roster on both sides of the ball, and he's obviously a very sharp defensive mind, so um, they could get there, but it just seems like a massive question mark. It could go totally one way or the other. But, yeah, we can move on. We've hammered that, that topic um, I don't know how much more you have for me, but maybe. Some uh, yeah, I mean, maybe just ice. maybe just the I mean, the cornerbacks recruiting, right? I mean, the, that's kind of the big news this week. I mean, we know Oregon wasn't expecting any commitments, you know, and we talked about it on the last show hop, you know, the the kind of the the lull here between the, you know, the the, the commitment run we you know, Oregon had in May and you know, kind of the end of June, early July, you know, kind of ex- expectation that there'll be some more, but you know, I think there was some some. Disappointing news for for Oregon fans on particularly at the cornerback position in recruiting, um, with you know first of all Dakota Fields who had been crystal ball to Oregon and and had you know seemed like a strong Oregon lean for quite some time, um, having visited USC over the last weekend and then committing to USC and canceling his his I think he had a visit to Oregon and another one to Washington that were both planned but. A, you know, apparently canceled. Uh, as far as I know, maybe you can touch on that. Um, so he committed to USC. Uh, to, you know, so he came off the board, and then and then the next day, uh, you know, probably the, the top 
prospect at, at the corner board, still on Oregon's board. You know, Zabian Brown out of modern day and, and Southern Cal, you know, basically eliminated the Ducks, um, was focusing on three other schools in his recruitment, including USC. And that was a kind of came out of left field because I think, you know, everyone was expecting, you know, that to be the guy that Oregon would would strongly be in play for. So to me, it was a surprise to hear him come off the board and eliminate Oregon and kind of maybe touch on those two and, and just the cornerback situation in general. Obviously, Oregon has Ify Obadegu in the fold, and he's locked and loaded. He's not taking any of the visits. He's solid to Oregon, which is a great number one in the class. But, you know, you, you really want to see a number two. So kind of where do, th- where do yeah. things stand? Yeah, no, and it's a – you know, again, you, you hate to miss out on a guy like Dakota Fields. It's a West Coast kid. You know, you'd love to beat USC for him. It's, it's a double down if you do. Um, I do think it's a stinger. I mean, there's no way to really sugarcoat that one. I know Oregon felt pretty solid on their chances with him, but, you know, USC got him on campus and 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 pushed forward with a really strong official visit. Um, and, and we know that, I mean, USC and Oregon are, are – I mean, really going to recruit against each other. You know, you're going to do your best job to, if you're USC, to keep him from going to Oregon and, and vice versa, you know, if you're Oregon against USC. So um, I think that's one that Dante Williams did well with. A couple of things that stick out to me, even if he cancels his June official visits, which it looks like is, is possible, he can still take him again in the fall, right? I mean, so we're talking about June here. You're going to have July. You're going to have August. You're going to hit September, maybe even October. We're talking about three or four months. That is an absolute lifetime in recruiting. I mean, so much can happen between now and then. And and some of those things could be, you know, USC starts out slow, loses a couple of games. It could be Oregon looks really strong. It could be, hey, I just, you know what, I just want to take some visits and make sure of my decision. That totally creeps into somebody's mind. It could happen with Oregon commits too. So it's not just something that, you know, is going to happen with Dakota Fields and USC. And I do feel that Oregon feels that um, that door is not completely shut, right? I mean, he just committed, so he's going to be pretty strongly committed. But again, we're talking about three or four months or even five months down the line. An absolute ton can happen um, in that time frame. So maybe, just maybe this works out better for Oregon. You get him on campus in the fall for an official visit. Things are going well um, and, and, and things can change. The other part of that is maybe you don't even need him by that time, right? Maybe you filled up your room. Uh, with some of the other guys that are on the board, the Ducks are in really good shape with. Uh, they had uh, uh, he's from Alito, Chris Johnson, that was on campus yesterday uh, out of Texas. That's a guy that uh, you know I started talking about about a month ago or so that Oregon's been heavily recruiting somebody that they really like from their own evaluations. Um, he's six foot one, 175 pounds, and it looks like the Ducks not only had him on campus yesterday, he'll be back for an official visit later this month on the the big weekend of the 23rd. So to your point, something you said a few minutes ago, maybe Oregon only takes one more cornerback and then you have Chris Johnson there and then maybe they hold out for a big fish and and Aaron Scott, maybe circle back around on Dakota Fields. I could see that very much being kind of the scenario in play for Oregon. So those are some of the names I would watch for right now. The third that I'll throw out that I think Oregon has probably – I want to say like a really good shot with is, is miles Lockhart, the Basha Arizona cornerback. He has been on record saying he has a tight relationship with not only Demetrius Martin and his son, Cole Martin, but the whole family, you know, mom, uh, all the family, daughter, uh, sisters, everybody. So that's a guy that, you know, I think Oregon, you know, will get on campus for an official visit. 
looks like they're battling Ohio State for him right now at the moment. That's a very good school to be battling with, but he's at least in your footprint. So you got to like Oregon stands there. So, I mean, those are just a couple of names. Oregon could easily hit on both Lockhart and Chris Johnson and say, hey, we're done. That's three corners. We had a huge cornerback uh, class in 2023. We don't need that many numbers. Let's just move forward with what we have. I could totally see that being the scenario. Would suck to kind of miss out on Xavier and Brown. Would suck to kind of miss out on Dakota Fields. But you're not really feeling like Oregon went to the bottom of the barrel. And one I'll throw out, and I'll go ahead and do it here because I'll probably have the article up before we get to, you know the podcast crunched and out to the masses. But uh, Oregon will also host uh, San Mateo Junior College cornerback Sion Laulia later this month for an official visit. He's supposed to be a part of that uh, June 23rd group. So that's a, a premium story that I'm about to write that uh, I'll get out before this uh, podcast is is uh, is pushed and published. But uh, so that's another one. You know, wait a minute. Has- I'm going to publish this right now so we can scoop we can scoop you scooping you. Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You'll get it out there before before the pod, I, but I will. And and so you know, I'll go ahead and talk about it here because once I do, everybody will, will follow up on it because it'll be the new news. But um, you know, Sion is a junior college de- uh, defensive back that has two years left. Orgard offered him uh, two or three months ago, as I recall. And if you will also recall, uh. College of San Mateo, Oregon has had exceptional luck recruiting out of that school as well. So it looks like Penn State, USC, and Miami are some others involved there. So that yet again gives Oregon a fourth cornerback option in this class that isn't named Dakota Fields or Xavier Brown. So um, hopefully that maybe answers that question. Yeah, no, that, sorry, I was typing away, so you probably heard that on the pod, people, apologies. Um, No, that's awesome, and I think, you know, one of the things I was, there was a lot of people panicking yesterday, you know, or this week, oh no, you know, we lost Dakota Fields, and we've lost Sabian Brown, like, cornerback recruiting is in a dumpster fire, and I'm like, you know, relax, relax, (laughs) like, we've got Iffy locked up, there's like you said, there's there's other big fish still on the board. I mean, Aaron Scott's coming for a visit. Like, I, I mean, I'm not saying Oregon's leading for him, but like we're in the game, right? Uh, you know, and, and the other all the other guys you mentioned, all like all, these are quality players, right? I mean, yes, they may not be the number one guy on our board. Maybe they're number two or number three, but like it's not like we're. This isn't like five years ago when all of a sudden we're looking for a three star on signing day. Right. I mean, there's still right. very, very quality choices out there and, and Oregon's going to, they're going to get a, a good one or two more to add to Iffy like at this position, it's not, it's not doom and gloom. And, and also like Oregon signed four quality, you know, four blue chip plus prospects at, at corner last year. Like it's, Obviously, you want to sign two or more every year, but it's a position that they really loaded up on in the 23 class. And, you know, so the ro- from a roster composition standpoint, like, the the world's not falling. <laughs> the sky's not falling. The world's not ending. Like, we're going to be fine. Yeah. Your, th- your third best cornerback by ranking last year was Dalen Austin in the t- 2023 class. And, and he might be the best one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just for my money, that's a really good third option. You got Roderick Pleasant, you know, above him, who's going to be, you know, looks like he's going to be a really good one. And you have Cole Martin, who's already, you know, a part of a part of the program and, and working out with the team. And, and he's a coach's son, so you know he's working hard. 
You've got Colin Gill, who's probably going to be a nickel, but still he could move around. Last but not least, Kyrie Jackson, okay, and um, Nico Reed both have multiple years left as transfers. So they might not stay for both those years, but they have them if that's something that it, you know, that that it comes down to. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, sure, it sucks to miss out and lose out on guys to USC. There's no doubt about that. And and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. USC flat out beat out Oregon for forum but you know oregon also beat out usc for roger pleasant oregon also beat out usc for dalen austin last year um so it, they're in a good spot and i think you hit the nail on the head this isn't like recruiting a few years ago where all of a sudden they go and figure out okay this guy's committed to boise state and looks kind of decent let's offer him like they're not doing that they're still going after guys that by the way miles lockhart and aaron scott you're competing with ohio state for both of them I mean, that's those are not slouches of cornerbacks that you're competing, uh, you know, competing for currently. So you've got to you just kind of kind of take it, take a step back. And the other thing, yeah. and I feel like, I feel like fans aren't paying attention to this. OK, and it's been it's kind of become to my uh, just it's kind of come up on my mind. It's something I was going to talk about. But with the way Oregon's recruiting, OK, and the guys they are recruiting, you're going to take some L's like it's just going to happen. You're not going to close on 100% of the four and five stars you're recruiting. Okay, so this isn't where we, we're kind of dipping our toe and going after two or three, you know, maybe one five star and two or three highly ranked four stars, which is what Oregon used to be doing. Literally, two thirds of this class is going to be ranked inside the top 150 or better. You're going to take some L's if you're yeah. recruiting at this level. It's just going to you're happen. fishing in the deep waters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Like, if, if you look at when a player comes out with their top three list or their official visit list, and and you, and you see Oregon's logo on there. Who's the other logos on there? Right? It's Georgia. It's Bama. It's LSU. It's USC. It's Ohio State. Right? I mean, you're talking about the elite of the elite programs, and and those are the those are the programs. You're, you think they're all just gonna like lose to Oregon on every single recruit? Like, come on, come on. That's that's an unreal. Like, guess what? Like you said. Alabama ain't getting all those guys either. Like they're losing some of those battles. Georgia's losing some of those battles, right? I, I mean, if you if you want to win every every top three battle you're in, then great. You set your sights lower, and the and the <laughs> logos on that list are are Oregon State or Washington or Arizona or you know Colorado. And yeah, guess what? We win ninety percent of those battles, but the, the the end result is the caliber of player on your roster isn't as good. Right. So do you want do you want to feel better about winning a higher percentage of recruiting battles and have a worse roster, or do you want to have a better roster and and lose more recruiting battles against elite programs? Like, come on. Yeah, and that's that's the transition. That's what I, I just don't think. And that's the thing. Like, Oregon recruiting has probably evolved more in the last decade than any other program out there. I mean, if yeah. you think about it, we're talking about what we were at with Chip Kelly around. And don't get me wrong, Chip Kelly had, you know, the, the fun offense and was able to get some quarterbacks and some, some skill talent and, and able to do some things. And, and don't get me wrong, they got DeForest Buckner, they got Eric Armstead for various reasons, but those guys turned out to be really good. But it wasn't it was not the level we are now. And even with Mario Cristobal, who did better than anybody before him, we're at a different level than Mario Cristobal was at. So, I mean, it's yeah. just, you know, yeah, it's, it's fun and it's exciting, but yeah, you're going to, you're going to take some L's. You're not going to go a hundred percent. You know, you're not going to land every five star that you offer and get on campus. 
let's be thankful that this staff is able to get these guys on campus. You got a guy like David Stone or Colin Simmons, both five stars elite at their position with every offer in the country and have visited Oregon multiple times already. And both will probably take official visits to Oregon still. That's what you're after. That's the next wave. And then of course, obviously if you're recruiting three or four guys of that caliber, you want to close on one or two of them and you're not going to close on all of them. You're going to lose some of them to Oklahoma or Bama or Georgia or Texas or the schools you mentioned, who are also, by the way, you know, recruiting inside the top 10 or recruiting rankings. Yeah. It, it, yeah. We're not going up against, we're not going up against nobody, you know, over there on the other side. Right. <laughs> it's just, that's not, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a cutthroat game and everybody's going to win some and everybody's going to lose some. And, and, you know, you get, you got to start looking at that as a failure. Like I, I hate the way, you know, people, and this isn't just an Oregon thing, right? What, like some fans, like, oh, staff failed on that guy. Well, I mean, did they? Right? Like, I mean, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, the the player has a decision. Like, it's their choice, right? Like, the staff could do literally one hundred percent of everything right in an individual recruitment and not land the recruitment because it's not there aren't robots on the other end. It's not a. It's not a. It's not an algorithm in a computer game, right? Oh, if I if I if I spend more of my budget on, you know, home visits to this guy, then he's going to commit here. Right? It doesn't work that way. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, there's, there's 17, 18 year old kids who have free will, and and also have some really really good freaking options at the other side of the table, you know, competing for the services. So, it like you said, I, you know, the thing that strikes me and going back to the cornerback situation is how much how much further we've come you know of late and particularly under this staff and okay if something like like these two guys you know let's say our number two and number three you know choice at corner came off the board this week our number four number five number six choices are really really good choices whereas yeah in the past even a few years ago we're we're now like we're scrambling like trying to get in the game with somebody we haven't been recruiting or we hope you know we hope some high three star maybe is under recruited you know I mean like this like the fact that we have backup plans to our backup plans to our backup plans who aren't just people we're calling out of the blue or people we've actually been in touch with and recruiting all along like that just it's the next level it's the next level yeah I mean, let's be real. Oregon loses out on Dakota Fields and Xavier Brown. We'll just say they don't get either of them. The next three after that look like Miles Lockhart, who you're battling Ohio State for, Aaron Scott, who you're battling Ohio State for. And, you know, you can go with the Juco kids, Sion, and, and say him. And he's got Penn State, Miami, USC, Oregon. Um, you know, Chris Young is really the, the one that you're taking a flyer on, and they've been recruiting him for several months already. This isn't a guy they just started calling this week. So they obviously see something they like. He's not the blue chip that some of the others are, but he might be your third guy out of that group. And you're, you're going to feel pretty good about that at that point. So, yeah. yeah. And, and lastly, <laughs> lastly, we can move on. What is Dante Williams really good at in recruiting? It's getting early commitments. What's Dante Williams really bad at in recruiting? It's holding on to those early commitments. Okay, he did the same thing at Oregon, the same thing at USC last year. Come October, November, December, he has a tough time keeping those guys in the fold. It's been his kryptonite. I'm not saying that will happen with any of these guys, but yeah. it's certainly there's history there to support what I'm saying. Yeah, and I don't, uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to flip any flip Dakota Fields or not. Like whatever. Uh, I, and I think the other thing going back in his two years here, you know, look at 
who Dante Williams got a commitment from that actually ended up enrolling in Oregon, and you take that list and you stack it up against what Coach Meat has got on campus in his, you know, slightly less than two years here, there's no question, to my mind, like that list, I mean, Meat's list blows Dante's out of the water. It's not even close. Of the actual signed product, it's not even close. Yeah. So I, I I have every confidence in Meat and the rest of the staff to land a great a great haul at that position and you know and if they need to go to the portal they've proven they can do that as well obviously they could tap that again I I'm it's there's there's several positions and this is such a luxury right where you look at up and down the roster at recruiting and there's I, there's so many positions now where I'm just like. I'm not even worried at well I know wherever we land at running back is going to be awesome. Wherever whatever whoever we sign at wide receiver is going to be great. Whoever we sign at corner is going to be great. I have like zero concerns about those three positions. Um and in fact D-line I'd D-line to that now under this under the staff with with Tuioti and Tosh and Dan like I think they you know they got two cycles now where there's three almost where you've shown like i'm not worried about you know i'm talking about interior right edge i think we still got something to prove there but you know i'm not worried about corner at all i'm not worried about receiver and i'm not worried about running back like boom done like whoever we get is going to be great it's gonna be a great class if you if you go back to 2000 the class of 2021 which is the last full cycle that dante williams was here okay 2021 yeah here's the court here's the cornerbacks from that class avante dickerson gone jalen davies gone oh there's damon david but that's the safety so we won't count him and there was one more oh darren barkins also gone those were the those were the last three corners that and and who uh, did he sign in 20 2020 dante manning yeah who has yet to really fully emerge on the field maybe this is his year yeah maybe this is his year but that's what i'm saying even if you say okay let's say he does emerge and he blows up and he ends up being a a first round talent or whatever you know or or, or a draft pick right okay great that's awesome but that's dante manning and did he land did he land mikhail Wright, or was that the previous court coach uh mikhail yeah okay so let's get here for that and that was mostly keith hayward Doing, okay, doing but let's those. just like, give him credit anyway, right? Okay, so even if right. you say Dante gets credit for Dante Manning and, and Mikhail Wright, like that's that's two, you know, and obviously we're not going to see what the finished product of right. of um, Coach Meach recruiting is, but, you know, uh, certainly from a talent perspective, it's 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 a lot better right now when we'll see where it, where it pans out from play on the field standpoint. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't even. I think Dante King. I think Dante was hired at the end of Mikel Wright's recruitment. Of that, you cycle, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So was, yeah, maybe he helped close him. I, I you know, but like, I, I think yeah. the point. The point stands either way. Right. Anyways, we don't have to pick on him. We'll just see what happens. Cornerback recruiting is going to be fine, like you said. Cornerback recruiting is going to be fine. You know, linebacker recruiting. You know, you might take an L with Justin Williams, but you're looking pretty good for Dylan Williams and some other guys. Braden Platt is like your third or fourth option and he's still a top 150 player so like you said uh you know junior adams is getting it done drew Maringer's getting it done pretty well at tight end recruiting uh and it certainly looks like elite terry is is emerging as a guy that gets it done as well at all fits line recruiting 
All right, I think one more quick thing here on a different on a Pac-12 topic, and then we're we're at an hour already, Justin. So we can oh, man. quits there. But you know, I think just some people will have noticed the the buzz going around this morning. Uh, John Canzano kind of let it off with his new article today that said the 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 packed the re- the remaining ten PAC member institutions have have verbally agreed to um, a grant of rights. Now that and I, I want to clarify what this means and what it doesn't mean. <laughs> so, and when you and then Dellin, I think Ross Dellinger kind of followed up on it and the stuff's out there. So, what has been agreed to is, in the event that there's a acceptable media deal, if, if that happens, then the the teams have agreed on how they're going to do the re- that they will sign a grant of rights, and there will be some amount of unequal revenue sharing presumably on the postseason money, right? So the TV money will be equally split, just like it always has, but similar to what the ACC is moving to, there will be some agreed amount of, okay, okay, you go to a college football playoff, you get to keep more of that money than the rest of the... It's not evenly split. If you go to the NCAA tournament, you get to keep more of that money. It's not evenly split, right? So everyone's agreed to that framework. But the key here is none of that matters unless and until there's an actual TV media deal that is agreeable to those schools. So it's all fine and dandy that that they're saying, hey, great, we've agreed to the structure of our grant of rights. But it's completely meaningless until there's a TV deal. And we have no indication that that's the case as of this time. Basically, I just said, Doug, I'm going to give you a million dollars, okay, if we can get somebody to sponsor this podcast for $20 million. Yeah. And I said, great, I will happily take the million dollars and and you can take, you know, and, and, and we'll divide up the money this way and QB will get, apparently get 18 and we get a million each, which seems a little unfair, but, but we'll divide up that money. We, we all agree to divide up the money that way. Great. Right. We can say that all we want, but until somebody writes that $20 million check, it's meaningless. Yeah. Good analogy. It, I like that. It was a good, it, and it certainly seems. I don't debate one bit that Commissioner Klavkov isn't doing absolutely everything he possibly humanly can to save this conference. But it certainly seems, just from afar with no inside information, it certainly seems he's doing nothing but fighting an uphill battle. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, to me, and I, I think I posted this on Scoop Deck yesterday. Like, I my read. I mean, there's so much smoke about Colorado flipping to the Big Twelve. Like, it, it's almost. There's so much smoke, you have to think there's... I mean, maybe not, and maybe some rabbit can get pulled out of the hat, but it almost seems like a a, 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 a when, not if. And and, yeah. and I think the Pac-12 plan, if I'm the Pac-12, is, okay, if Colorado leaves, we add San Diego State, we stay at 10, and you know we can keep the other nine in the fold and get a media deal, then we can, we can be fine. And honestly, I think there's... There, that's a plan. That's a viable plan because I don't think like swapping out Colorado for San Diego State is going to materially change the value of the media deal. It just it, no. it's one out of ten, and it's one of the lower valued out of the ten. Like I mean, let's be honest. Like Washington, Oregon are driving sixty plus percent of the overall value of the media deal anyway. So yeah, if you swap out one of the other eight for somebody else who's all by the way in Southern California, which gives you a nice footprint, like. You could make a case. It's 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 might even be better for the conference over the long haul post Dion, but it certainly isn't 
materially going to impact the number one positive or negatively. So from a Pac-12 standpoint, if that's the strategy of, hey, we think Colorado's gone, we'll add San Diego State, stay at 10 and, and, and move forward. Like, I understand, like, that's a viable strategy for them. Now, the question becomes, if Colorado leaves, does that start the dominoes, right? And I think the Pac-12 is saying, like, if we can stop it with that first domino by inserting San Diego State and keep the other nine, then then we can move forward. And I get that's Kuyavikov's plan. But it, the, I think the danger is if Colorado leaves and the dominoes start, does Arizona quickly follow? Then what, you know? And I think once yeah. that second school follows, I think that's where... Yes. The chain reaction really... I, I think you can survive the loss of one, assuming you can get a media deal. I don't think you can survive the loss of two because now you're trying to backfill the Arizona with SMU. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Right. No, I, that's a really good way to look at it. I do think that you're, there's a potential domino effect in play here. It certainly looks like Colorado is the most likely first domino to fall if it's going to go that way. And... Uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm totally guessing here, but you've got to think like, you've got to think like July 1st or July 15th. It's probably like a deadline for some of these schools, right? It feels like, it feels like Colorado has probably verbally agreed to something with the big 12 and saying, Hey, let, let me, let's make sure let's give the PAC 12 till July 1st or whatever to come up with a deal. I, I feel like that's what's going on. There's got to be some sort of a date that we probably don't know about that, you know, basically they're saying give Commissioner Klebkov to this date. If he can't come up with the media deal that we like, we're gone. That's what it feels like with Colorado. And like you said, more than likely, maybe Arizona joins them. And, and I do think that Washington and Oregon probably have some form of a, of a, of a verbal, you know, idea with the Big Ten in place for them to possibly make a move as well. But you're right. If Colorado bolts and if they're the only one, you could probably salvage the Pac-10 if you want to. If Colorado goes, then Arizona Arizona goes. You're probably in, in pretty deep crap at that point. <laughs> yeah, and then I think, you know, just from an Oregon perspective, then I think that, you know, the question is, do you, do you have a – do you have a back? I, I think the Big Ten is waiting to see what happens, right? And I, I don't, I don't think yeah. they're, I don't think they're like, I don't think they're motivated to add Oregon and Washington and kill the Pac-10. I think if the Pac-10 gets killed by the Big Twelve, the question becomes: Does the Big Ten step in and say, "Okay, Oregon and Washington, let's go," or do they just stand aside? And then I think that's that's where, if you're an Oregon fan, you're like, "Okay, then what?" Because. It, it certainly, and we've talked about this before, it certainly doesn't seem like there's any interest on the part of Oregon and Washington to go to the Big 12. But right. if at some point, like what, if the if if Colorado leaves and then Arizona leaves and then maybe Arizona State follows, I mean, at some point, you got to do something. Because <laughs> now what's right. that media deal going to look like? Right. I don't no, know. To- totally. Totally. But I mean, and again, we've always felt this way. It feels like this has to be getting to like a, I know. I I would have said that though at the end of, I would have said the end of May was that right. Like, I mean, I think we've been saying like we, these deadlines keeps, okay, it's gotta be, it's gotta be March. And now it's, Oh, it's gotta be April. And then like everyone was adamant and all the, all the talking heads online are adamant that May, the end of May was that, that was it. And now here we are on June 7th, and everyone's like, oh, you know, it might be the end of June. <laughs> so I don't know. It does feel like it has to be the end of June. But on the other hand, 
fool me once, right? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't have to be. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it totally feels like it has to be the end of June. But again, no real information on that. So I'm not going to sit here and put it out on Twitter and, yeah. and make people think it's so. It just feels like that because I, I can't imagine that they want to go through the season with all this stuff still Oh, I, to me, that's the real, like, okay, maybe it's end of June, then maybe that slips to end of July. But, man, I feel like you can't you can't actually enter the football season with this hanging over it. I, right? Like, right. there's no way. There's no way. I mean, at that point, you're nine months away from the end of the conference. I mean, you're, you're running out of time to, to plan and pivot. And I, I, that, to me, is the, the point where I would just be in disbelief if we're sitting here on September 1st talking about does the Pac-12 have a deal? Where's anybody going? Like, I, I, mean, I just, I, I, and I, again, I, I feel like knowing that we know there's a standing offer from the Big 12. I, I just don't see that the schools that that have that offer and are amenable to it would wait that long. I, I like, there's no way Colorado's going to wait to September, right? I, that seems impossible to me. And and same thing with you know maybe Arizona, Arizona State. Like, I think they they've been kind of giving the Pac-12 and George like, okay, here's another month. Okay, here's another month. But I mean, at some point, that has to just run out and you got to take the deal on the table. Yeah, there has to be a crap or get off the pot moment, I'm sure. I mean, there yeah. always is. I think we've just been wrong about when the, we thought that moment was. and it, and it or, <laughs> or credit to Commissioner Klievkov. He's really good at, at sweet talking. I mean, just give me 30 more days. Just give, you know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's probably what's happened. Just give me 30 more days, you know? And Yeah, and we're close. We're close. We got this close. thing. And I, you yeah. know, and I think there's been some things that maybe were, were you know, from what some of the stuff I've read, there's been some potential deals that were pretty far down the path and looked like they might close and then kind of backed out on it the last minute. And so that, 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 if you're, if you're Kyavkov, then you can go to your members and say, Hey, I've been keeping you updated. This deal was on the doorstep and it fell apart. So now I need more time to, you know, to put together the, you know, and you're going to, yeah. for the, the schools, at least nine schools that, you know, outside of Colorado, they're heavily motivated to stay in the conference. Nobody wants to leave. Like it's a it's a big deal to leave a conference, and I think people don't necessarily understand how how big of a deal that is institutionally for the people making these decisions. Like the cost of the the value of changing has to be. It, it can't just be like roughly equal or hey, it's slightly better. Like it has to be a significant improvement in not just financial value right but like like all the things that go into this decision making viability and all that like long term like there has to be a significant driver it, it can't just be we think it's five percent better you know like that's not that right and they're all they're all they're all risk averse right they're all change averse so it has to be and that's why i think we see this deadline or if you will not a real deadline you know kind of get stretched out because they don't want to leave they want yeah. to stay and so they're like okay we can we can give you 30 more days we don't have to move tomorrow like nothing there's no real effective difference if colorado announces a move to the big 12 june 1st versus july 1st like it does you know and and as much as the Big 12 homers want to say, well, we just need to put a deadline on the table. Like, that's not realistic because it's, yeah. that you're telling me if you tell Colorado if you don't if you don't come by June 30th, 
that's it. We're going to pull the offer. Then and and then they don't. And then they come to you in July fifteenth and say we want in. You're going to say no. Like I mean, your whole you have this whole grand plan of expansion. So of course the Big Twelve is still going to say yes. It would be a phony deadline on their part. The only yeah. way that the only way the Big Twelve, you know. The, the Big 12 is going to pull an offer to any of these schools is, A, if they get other schools instead, right? So if they get – they only want two Pac-12 schools, and right now they have offers out to four, and then the first two in the boat, and yeah, the other two might get pulled. Or if they have some massive change in their fundamental strategy that they've been working on for a year, and I don't see that as likely. Like – so it's just it's just phony. It would just be phony, like bluster. But the Big Twelve, I will say this: their PR has been so aggressive, and it's so different than what anybody has ever done in this space, right? The the public PR campaign they've waged around around this whole realignment and expansion and everything has been something we've never seen before by any conference and. And it's, I think it's created a lot of stuff out there in the Twitterverse that, you know, fans just follow and they read into and they just believe everything they read. And uh, I'm not saying there's not truth to a lot of the stuff, but the the PR campaign has been very effective in creating narratives that may not be remotely true. (laughs) Right. Yeah, their negative recruiting has been substantial and noticeable. Obviously, you know, the constant hit pieces from Dennis Dodd and some of the others. Yeah. It's pretty well, and like, oh, the Pac-12 deal is nine million dollars per team. Like, come on. Come on. Right. Like, that's not like there's that's not that's just silly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and every everybody who's done valuations, you know, honestly, have all arrived at the same conclusion is that, you know, the remaining Pac-10 schools and the remaining you know, Big Twelve schools plus their new ones are have roughly the same value, right? Like, yeah. you know, well, you could say one's a little bit more valuable than the other, one's a little bit less value than the other. But like, in a in a net net like, you know, zero sum game, they're roughly the same value. Now, the supply and demand issue is what's driving the the difference right now, right? And the why the Pac twelve is. I'm having trouble getting a deal and why their deal may come in less than the big 12 deal isn't because their underlying value is necessarily any less. It's because, you know, all of the, most of the TV slots have been filled up so that yeah. the, the buyers don't have as much of a dire need. And that was the big miscalculation of the PAC 12 presidents and the big smart calculation of the big 12 presidents is, is realizing that supply demand you know, factor when it comes to inventory. And that that's the driver of the value difference. It's not that the inherent value of the Pac-10 is $9 million per school. I mean, come on. Right. Like, I, I also, you know, and that, that kind of goes, going back to the Big Ten, you know, thing, you know, I read this article that was well-researched and sourced that said that, that BYU alone was worth $60 million to the Big 12 deal. And I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but when you compare that to all these people who've been saying for the last 12 months that that Oregon and Washington are only worth about $40 million each. And I'm just like, that. those two things don't reconcile to me. Like, cool. I, on one hand, you can't tell me that Oregon's worth $40 million, but BYU's worth sixty. Like, I, that doesn't pass the smell test. Like, it just doesn't. Right. 
I don't know what I don't know what either one's worth, but I also think there's a difference in worth in a vacuum and worth in in the market as it currently stands. And then the, obviously the the economic downturn has played a factor. Just, anyway, we've talked about this long enough. We've beaten it to death, and I guess we'll see as we continue to wait and watch for realignment slash media deal. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Anything else you want to touch on today? No, that's it. We we we've hit it hard and and long. So we got we got more out of this week than I uh, than this week in this week's pod than I expected. So <laughs> yeah, I I when we started recording, I thought, gosh, I hope we can fill twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we yeah. didn't have a problem there. We did that. Yeah, we did that and then some. All right, Hop, you have a good one, and, and everyone go check out, uh, like I said, he's got some new stuff coming up or, or that, that has now been posted already on uh, scoopdeck.com, and, and every day there's great content over there. So check that out, and we will see you soon. Take care.